So I was assigned the task to enter into the series that you guys are currently in as the new year began, Unstuck. And I bet you had no idea how stuck you really were until the new year began. I didn't know I was stuck in my finances the way I was. I didn't know I was stuck in relationships the way I was. I had no clue that I was even stuck in church the way I was. Well, it was easy for me to pick what do we need to be unstuck in out of that list. I naturally went to affliction. How do you get unstuck in affliction? Now, when I say affliction, and I'll define it over and over again as the morning unfolds. I'm talking about tribulation. I'm talking about trials. I'm talking about misfortunes. I'm talking about the thorns in the flesh that are nagging. They're irritating. They are debilitating. And what do we do with them? So here we give, I'm going to give you the bottom line of the message up front. If you get this, you'll get it all. Getting unstuck in affliction isn't about deliverance. It's about development. Huge difference there. Now let me explain that. A lot of times we pray, God, get me out of this trouble. And if you listen carefully, you hear him say, I'm not going to deliver you out of the trouble until you allow me to deliver the trouble out of you. He won't move you. So before I go any further, let me make sure I steady my heart and mind before we open up God's word together. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you again for this opportunity to address your people, your church, You call us your bride. You love us. I pray our hearts are open, cultivated, surrendered, ready to receive your word. Lord, that you would motivate us by your Holy Spirit to get out of the way of your grace. And that your grace would work in our hearts and our minds and make us look more like Jesus. That's why we come together in his name we pray. Amen. So I do not want you to leave today with just an informed mind. My prayer as a minister of the gospel is that you would leave any gathering with a transformed heart. Because a lot of times in churches we get informed minds, we get a lot of information. My desire is that your heart would be transformed from the inside out. I also don't want anybody to come up to me afterwards and say, wow, you're a great speaker. I prefer that you come to the conclusion that we serve a great Savior. I was not invited to C.C. Delco to give a good talk. I'm here for God to talk. I want him to speak to you. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know your affliction. I don't know your misfortune. I do not know your thorn in the flesh. But I know somebody that does. And I serve a God in his sovereignty who allows, I'll say he authors or authorizes, nonetheless he controls it all. So no matter what you're currently going through, I want to help you through the scriptures to get unstuck from your affliction. Now the ministry or the service of thorns carries with it more grace and glory than the ministry of thrones. Here's the comparison. The ministry or service of that which is uncomfortable carries with it more grace, more opportunity for growth than the ministry of what's comfortable. God can't do work in us when we're comfortable. And the American church doesn't help that cause with our comfortable seats, our comfortable settings. And here God is trying to get us out of our comfort zone. Any athlete knows you can't grow nor get better in comfort. We must push beyond our comfort zone. And it's out of that comfort where the Lord begins to minister in us what he couldn't do when we're comfortable without him. Comfort is almost independence of God. When I'm uncomfortable, when I'm in the trenches, That's when I usually call out to him more. That's usually when I lean into him more. That's when I usually depend upon him more. And then I get out of it and I forget 
how desperate I was while I was in it. And then we wonder why the affliction comes again. We've got to learn how to navigate affliction. I believe these thorns in our flesh, they bring us to a place of our own inadequacy. And it's in that place, oh, that exact place, where you will discover God's sufficiency, that he is all you will ever need. No, you don't need a better set of circumstances. You need to just set your eyes on Jesus. Have you ever heard of Johnny Erickson Tata? Of course, she was a vibrant, youthful young girl, 17 years of age, dove headfirst into the Chesapeake, struck the bottom, instantly broke her neck. Her entire life was changed in a second. She would never have mobility in her limbs ever again. She wrestled as a young believer with why would God allow that to happen? Why me? But as she wrestled in her faith, so much so that she came to a place 50 years now confined to a wheelchair where you could hear her either speaking or writing about her weakness. Quote, my weakness, that is my quadriplegia, is my greatest asset. What? She continues her quote, because every morning when I wake up, it drives me into the arms of Jesus. You understand? Because she can't wake up like most of us do and have mobility in physicality, it drives her into the arms of Jesus faithfully, spiritually, emotionally, and it's in that her platform is launched by her pointing to God being good even if circumstances aren't good. She's navigating her affliction so much so that midway through her ministry, she said publicly, when I get to heaven, I want to take that wheelchair and I want to throw it into hell. And then she started to analyze that statement. She came out and said, remember when I said I want to take that wheelchair and throw it into hell? I've changed my mind. I want to take that wheelchair and bring it to Jesus. And I want to say to him, you weren't lying when you said in this world we would have tribulation because that chair right there, that's been a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that, the harder I leaned in on you. And the harder I leaned in on you, Jesus, the stronger I discovered you to be. She turned her paralysis into purpose. She got unstuck, which wasn't about deliverance. It was about development. Now, God will allow affliction to befall our lives for a variety of reasons. I'm going to tell you that there are three reasons primarily that God will allow a thorn in the flesh, an irritant, a nag, to touch your life. The first reason is to humble you before him. He's always in the business of humbling us. Why? Because there's so about our DNA, our human nature, to put ourselves on a pedestal. We are prideful, naturally, in our selfishness and our fleshiness. We are prideful. And God says, I'm going to allow a circumstance because I need you to be dependent upon me. The opposite of humility is pride. Pride is independence from God. Pride says, I don't need God. Pride says, I'm good figuring life out on my own. So God says, I'm going to touch your life with something that's uncomfortable because I want you to be dependent upon me. And I want to humble you before me. See, I heard the story about the coach, Coach Smith, successful 
season up to this point. Him and his team created a lot of buzz in the community. There was a lot of attention around Coach Smith. One day as he's shaving, his wife bursts into the bathroom and says, you won't believe it, Sports Illustrated is on the phone for you. He threw his razor down. He said, it's about time. Picked up the phone. Coach Smith here. Hey, Coach, Sports Illustrated here. We just wanted to let you know that for 75 cents in issues, you can have Sports Illustrated for a full year. Pride humbled. See, there's a reason why the Apostle Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You can turn there in your Bibles. That's where we're going to stay. In verse 7, he exclaims, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, was granted to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Did you catch that? He sandwiched this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan that has struck him with, lest I think more highly of myself than I ought, lest I become independent of God. God has allowed a thorn in the flesh to humble me. God wanted him to be humble before him. And there's a reason why he uses the word thorn in the flesh. The word thorn in the flesh, if it's in your mind right now, you're thinking of an actual thorn, which can be in and of itself a great irritant. You ever had just a splinter? And how that is such a nag. Well, when Paul penned thorn in the flesh, he didn't have a thumbtack in mind. You know what he had in mind? A tent stake. A tent stake that was 18 inches long. That's what he was writing about, this thorn in the flesh. But he's not stressing the metaphorical size. He just wants you to picture it in your mind. He's stressing the acuteness of the suffering. The definition in the Greek of this thorn, you ready for it? It's scallops. It means anything Pointed, yet divinely permitted. And I'm going to add to that. And even custom fitted. Because your thorn is not my thorn. And there's a reason why there's ambiguity in the scriptures. There are many historians that write about Paul's thorn. They say, we know what Paul's thorn is. It's an opponent. It's somebody that was a persecutor. They followed him around when he was preaching. They would heckle him. That's his thorn. And then other people rise up and go, no, that's not his thorn. His thorn was a, an ailment, a physical handicap. It was an eyesight problem. It was something that was plaguing him physically. That's his thorn. Others say, no, that's not his thorn. His thorn is his past. It's haunting him. The shame of persecuting Christians his now brother and sisters in Christ, that's haunting him. He's, he's being nagged by it. But guess what? Again, God leaves it very vague so that we can't point at other people and say, oh, that's not a thorn in the flesh. Because God wants us all to realize the things that touch our lives, the afflictions, the misfortunes, they are custom fitted for us. And yes, in your life, a thorn, a nag, an irritant could be a person. It could be a coworker. Hey, married couples in here, look at me. Don't you dare look at your spouse right now. <laughs> the thorn could be a physical handicap. It could be an ailment. It could be something you're struggling with emotionally, something from your past that is debilitating you presently. It could be all those things. It could be anything, hear me on this, anything from criticism to cancer could be this agitation in your life, this affliction in your life. Notice Paul writes, a messenger of Satan to 
buffet me. That's the word strike. It comes with force. Now, this is why people will say, do you see it's from the devil? Did, did you read that? The messenger of Satan? It's from the devil. And others goes, no, but it wouldn't be the devil's agenda to humble you. He wants to inflate you, so it's got to be from God. And then these debates take place about was it from God? Was it from the enemy? And then there are talk shows that literally center down on a question. Okay, if God is so good, why is there evil in this world? Go. And you get people trying to come up with their own conclusions, and then the Christians enter into that conversation, and we get tongue-tied trying to explain why a good God allows evil in this world, and we do more harm trying to defend God's reputation than good. Newsflash, church. Where the thorn came from is not nearly as important as what the thorn came for. I'm not going to argue, did the, de the devil do this? Did God allow this? Because ultimately when I understand sovereignty, God controls it all, good, bad, and ugly. It all has purpose in God's economy. I am not going to wrestle with that question anymore. Instead, I'm going to say, God, why did this storm touch my life? What do you want me to learn from it? What's the lesson while I'm in it? Remember, Three primary reasons. First, humble us before God. Second, make us more prayerful in God. Third, to be more useful to God. Now remember, this was what we're experiencing today was nothing new back in the day. There was the same argument. Why did somebody have a misfortune befall them? Do you remember in John chapter 9? We open up the scriptures and here's John chapter 9. It says... And there was a blind man from birth, and the disciples came to Jesus and said, Master, who sinned that he should be born that way? Did he sin, or did his parents sin? What were they searching for? They needed a reason for the condition that this man was in. And I love the response. Don't miss it. Jesus says, neither. Neither he sinned, nor his parents sinned but that the works of God would be revealed. Oh, there's your answer. Why did that thing touch your life? That the work of God would be revealed. Two chapters later, they send a message. Jesus, the one whom you love, Lazarus, is sick. Jesus says in return, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The sickness touched his life that God's glory would be renowned. It then tells us instead of responding to Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, instantly, that he stayed in the place where he was two more days. You ever felt like God's not entering in to your prayer request, to your need, to your circumstance? Let me just remind you delay is not denial. There might be a delay in God. He's waiting. He's setting the stage because it got worse before it got better. In fact, Jesus says to the disciples, Lazarus is just sleeping. And they said, oh, good. If he's sleeping, he'll get rest and he'll get better. And Jesus says, you don't get it. And he said to him plainly, verse 15, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Did you just catch that? Lazarus is dead. Sadness in their heart, 
gladness in his heart? What did he see? He saw the glory that would eventually be. He saw the miracle that would eventually fall. He saw his name be more renowned. Had he swooped in too soon, it wouldn't be as loud in the glory. See, the affliction has to fall. And instead of trying to get out of it, turn to the heaven and say, Lord, what do you want me to learn as I go through it? Now, don't get me started on Job. Because if you read that very carefully, chapter 1, you can't get past chapter 1 without the window of heaven being opened for us. Job was not privied to this conversation. We are, as believers, present day, who have God's holy counsel and his heart right here in my hand. The believer that knows God's heart will never question God's will. So I open up Job chapter 1 and I read that here God asks the enemy, Satan, where have you been? His response was his mission statement. Oh, you know, roaming to and fro, walking around on the earth. That's a pretty daunting thought. Now, what happens next blows my mind. Because here the enemy, he's out and about, sniffing around, and God brings up, have you considered my servant Job? Why did God do Job like that? Why did he put him out there? Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth. He is upright. He is blameless. He fears God and he shuns evil. And it was right after that where God gave permission for the enemy to touch his life, lost all of his possessions, lost all of his children, ten Friends came alongside of him, and they tried to figure out the why. There must be something in your life, Job, that's not yet uncovered. There's no way this stuff would happen to a righteous person. There's no way if God loves you that he would allow that to happen to you. But you know who saw what was in Job all along? The one who put it there, God. You know who saw the outcome as Job went through it? God. What we can't see is how it's all going to play out. But what I do know is that the scriptures are very clear for me to stay in the place of dependence and trust. And even though the thorn in the flesh is a nag, it's an irritant, it's striking me, it feels like it hurts like hell. That's what he said. My only response is to humble myself before God. Become more prayerful in God so that I could be more useful to God. Now, you might not know this about my testimony, but I lost my older brother in 2005. I'm one of four boys. I'm the youngest. My older brother, John, went to be with the Lord at at 28 years of age, which means my mother and father had to bury a child, my father's namesake, John Jr. Then within three years and only three months, I was responsible for an at-fault drunk driving fatality which resulted in the death of an innocent man named Hort Cap. You know that much about my testimony. And I bring that up to say because two sons, one passed away from a drug overdose, overdose. The other took somebody's life irresponsibly. People wanted to know, what did my parents do wrong? They had to have done something. My parents struggled with that. Was it something we did or didn't do? 
And all the while, seeing God's glory and the work of God revealed through it all, at a funeral, the gospel was propagated. Souls were changed. Lives came back to the cross. You see the work of God in my life today. If I could take that life back that I took, I would, but I can't. So I have to keep moving forward, trusting that there's a purpose in the cross. But don't get it twisted. Because from losing a brother, parents losing a child, my own decision, the enemy comes alongside and he tries to sabotage the affliction. And at the same time he's trying to sabotage, God is trying to sanctify the affliction. The word sanctify means he's setting it apart so he can use it. He often has to set it apart to sanitize it so he can use it. And here we are so focused on what the enemy says or what the world says that we completely miss what God said. And in this process, I got to make a decision. Now, we see it most beautifully in nature. The process of something that is entering into a life that's an irritant, it's a nag, it's an affliction, yet God takes it and makes something beautiful out of it. You ever wondered how a pearl becomes a pearl? One of the most beautiful stones, perfectly polished, perfectly rounded, does not have to be cut like other stones, like a diamond or a gemstone that have to be cut. The pearl is what it is. But an oyster actually allows a foreign object into it or what's called a parasite or even the proverbial grain of sand. It enters into the oyster and then the oyster has a defense mechanism. It's called nacre. It produces this solution or this chemical that covers over the irritant. And over time of the nacre covering the irritant, it eventually begins to polish it. And out on the other side comes the most beautiful pearl. And I'm saying sometimes God will allow an irritant to touch your life so that the work of grace can be accomplished in your life. Look at me. God is unwilling to leave you in the same condition he found you. He will do whatever he has to take to make you look more like Jesus. That's ultimately our destiny. Hey, look at me, church. Your destiny is not to be happy. Your destiny is not to be healthy. Your destiny is not to be wealthy. Your destiny is to look more like Jesus through conformity. For whom he foreknew, Romans 8, 29, he also predestined, that's the word destiny, that we would be conformed from the inside out into the image of his son. The work of grace in our lives. Now, here's another reason why the affliction touches me. Because I honestly don't know sometimes where I am in my spirituality, where I am in my faith. I think I had faith until that faith is tested. And faith that is not tested cannot be trusted. So this affliction, I'll call it a trigger. A trigger that reveals where I am in my character. Right, we always think we are where we want to be, but we're not really there and something touches our life and then we realize, man, I thought I was patient. Why am I frustrated? I thought I had faith. Why am I being debilitated by fear? And God says, well, I'm going to allow something to touch you because I want to develop you. I need you to understand that your character is more important to me than your comfort. And I want you to look more like Jesus. And this is a message for the American church because I was the poster child for one who 
called myself a Christian. I wore the name Christian, but I did not bear the nature of Christ. I was a Christian by name, but not by nature. And God was after my character. Heard the story about the zoo exhibit. It was renowned for its various showcases, from the reptiles to the birds, but especially the main attraction, the gorilla. People would come from all over to see the gorilla. Well, one day the gorilla died, and the zookeeper panicked. He knew he couldn't open the next day without filling the, the gorilla cage with something. So he decided to hire a man to wear a gorilla suit so the show could go on. So the man on his first day on the job, he's in his area. He's got the gorilla suit on. It's got the tiny eye hole. So he's having a hard time really seeing. He's trying to move around in this uncomfortable suit. He got too close to the wall of partition, the separation. He tripped over the wall and fell directly into the lion's den. He began to flip out. He began to scream at the top of his lungs. He was making a scene. He was yelling. He was trying to get away as the lion got closer and closer. The lion was getting closer, and the man's yelling. The, finally, the lion got right up behind him and said, shh, be quiet, or you're going to get us both fired. <laughs> and that story has absolutely nothing to do with the message. But sometimes we need a comic relief, don't we? Or does it? Because I see a lot of us wearing the costume Christian, but on the inside, it's still us that's living. It's still my sinful nature that is operating, yet I put the name of God on me, and God says, oh, you want to put my name on you? Then I'm going to pull out of you my character, and I'm going to allow an affliction to make you uncomfortable so that I could develop you and that's ultimately not to hurt you. It's to protect you. You ever wonder why? Most beautiful flower that I hope many of you ladies in here were acquainted with this past Thursday, the rose. You ever wonder why the stem is laced with thorns? This was interesting when I discovered that they are now scientifically engineering roses. You can go into a store and most likely... They are scientifically engineered. They're hybrid roses. But if you notice, if you look carefully, they're messed with by man, which means the stems no longer have thorns. And because the stems no longer have thorns, because man has messed with it, the scent of the rose is actually not as strong as it should be had it had the thorns. Because a wild rose that has the thorns has the most attractive scent and aroma it, in fact, draws all types of animals to it. And the reason why there are thorns, so that when the animal comes to devour this beautiful flower, the thorns protect it. And there's a reason why God allows you to have some thorns in your life, because he's trying to protect you too, so that the character within you can blossom like a rose. But don't you settle for your affliction. I am not talking about leaving here saying, oh, but it's my plight in life. It is my plot in life. It's my cast of the lot. I'm just going to surrender to it. Woe is me. That's not what Paul did. The next part of the verse says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. 
Does that sound familiar to anybody in here? That's a mirror of Jesus. Concerning this thing, I went to the Lord three times. I said, Lord, can you remove this? When Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, as Sam prefaced earlier, Jesus went into this garden called Gethsemane, which means oil press, so that the Holy Spirit of God could be pressed out of the Son of God. And he humbled himself, surrendered to, praying this prayer three times, he said to the Father. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, not my will, but your will. Now, please know that when Jesus said that, he was not settling with reluctance to the Father's command. I guess I'll do it. He was actually surrendering with obedience to the Father's command. There's a huge difference. He was essentially saying, not my will. I don't want my will my way. I would love for you to remove this from my life, but I don't want my way. I want your way. I want your will. And the answer from heaven was no. No to removal. In fact, this is by my approval. You must go through the cross of agony before you can get to the throne of glory. And he leaves the Garden of Gethsemane, and of course, here come the soldiers led by Judas, and we know the account. It says they chain him or put him in bondage. They bag him, which means they put a bag over his head and struck him. You ever been blindsided before? Being hit when you're not expecting it? It then tells us they plucked out his beard. It then tells us a precursor just for entertainment value before the crucifixion was what was called scourging. They would actually take a cat of nine tails which was a rod with leather straps that had glass and bone and metal attached to it, and they would whip the back of the criminal, making a lesson out of him. He's the example that you do not violate Rome. And they butchered Jesus' back. And I often read the accounts, and I go, why that, God? Why that much? Why couldn't they just take him to the cross? But they didn't stop there. It tells us in Matthew 27, they went over and found a thorn bush. And they took it and they manufactured a crown out of it. And it is said that the thorns were about two to three inches long. And they were often poisonous. And they thrusted that crown of thorns into Jesus' brow. And they hit it into him. So as it struck him and blood gushed out, poison shot in. And the face of Jesus was unrecognizable. And then he went to that cross. And I stop as his child and I say, why the thorns? Why that much? And God says, go back to the beginning. Because when Adam and Eve sinned and sin fell, Cursed was the ground. And instead of producing fruit, it produced thorns and thistles. And my son is going to redeem it all. He's going to leave nothing behind 
He's going to redeem the curse of the ground. He's going to redeem the curse of sin. He's going to redeem the curse of his creation. He's going to take it all upon himself so that you can stand before the Father completely justified. No longer identified because of your sin. You now have a new identity in the Son. He took the thorns. He took the scourge. He took the cross. He took my sin. And I wonder if that's enough for us to humble ourselves to God's only begotten son. Because what I'm bothered by as a minister is how many times people come up to me after hearing a message like this and still ask the question, why? If God's so good, why is this happening to my child? If God's so good, why do I lose this loved one? If God's so good, why do I have cancer? So with a pastor yesterday, stage four cancer, went into chemo, made it his mission to minister to everybody else. He said, my wife comes and we have fun ministering how good God is in our condition. I said, pastor, if you could go back and change the diagnosis, would you? He looked at me and without even thinking about it, he said, I would not. I've seen God's glory work. So instead of us complaining about the thorn's point, We need to be a people who pray about the point of the thorn. There was a man named Dr. Moon from Brighton, England. Of course, he was a healthy young man himself until he got stricken with a fever that caused him to go blind in one eye. He saw the world from half a lens, and then by 21 years of age, he lost the sight in his other eye. No longer to see what he had once seen. In his journal, through that journey of struggle and wrestling and being stuck with bitterness, he eventually came to a place where he was penning, God, take this talent of blindness and use it for your glory. It was soon after that surrender that God enabled Dr. Moon to invent what is known today as the Moon Alphabet for the Blind, which enabled thousands of people who were blind to be able to read the word of God for the first time. When you give God your affliction, he will use it. Here's the answer directly from the scriptures. Verse 9 says, Paul pled with the Lord about removing it, and the answer comes. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Translation, Sufficient for you is the grace of me. That's what God said. You see, we often think that grace is just like a handout from God. Here, here's some aid. Help yourself. But grace isn't a handout. Grace is God putting his hand out. Grace is him entering in with his presence. The grace of God is the presence of God. God, remove it. And he goes, I'll do you better. I'm going to enter into it with you because my grace is suffice. And my strength is teleos at your weakness. The word teleos comes to the English language as telescope. My strength is aimed at your weakness. My strength wants to be magnified. That's what a telescope does in your weakness. It is at this point when the apostle hears the answer, no to removal. Yes, this is by my approval. 
that he erupts into praise. Most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Don't miss what just happened. He is saying it is better for God's grace to enter in than for the thorn to be pulled out. Your prayer may be for God to remove that thing that's causing you so much of a struggle. And God says, no, I don't want to take it out. I want my grace to enter in. With all the people in this sanctuary right now, everybody can probably describe a different thorn in the flesh. Something that is causing you to struggle. I could list a thousand in my own life, but there's one that always trumps the rest. This March 7th will be 10 years exactly from the fateful night in 2009 where I was responsible for an at-fault drunk driving fatality. I made an egregious decision that resulted in the death of Mr. Hort Cap. And since that day, and of course there was extended forgiveness from the family, I knew that God forgave me. I went away for 55 months in prison. Some days I would wake up and I would be reminded I am the righteousness of God. Some days I'd wake up and I would be overcome by guilt and shame. How could I have done that? How did I do that? I'm responsible for pain and agony and irreversible consequences. And I often turn to God and say, God, please remove this thorn in the flesh. No, no, the thorn was not what I did. The thorn was the echo of what I did. The guilt that rises up in me often can debilitate me. It's what the enemy wants to remind me of every single time I'm about to preach. You aren't good. You did that. God can't use you. God, you need to remove this. And he says back to me, son, if I remove the feeling, I will also have to remove my healing. Because it's the guilt that drives you to my grace. We often see guilt as something that is not good. And God allows guilt as something that should drive us to his goodness. Guilt should not fester. That turns into shame. Guilt should get you to push forward into God's grace. That's why when Paul wrote, the power of Christ may rest upon me, I could picture him with the pen to parchment making the connection in such creative fashion. Remember earlier he called the thorn in the flesh a tent stake? He chose the Greek word for rest at the next part, which means to tent upon. In other words, the thorn in the flesh is the tent stake that has humbled me so that the power of Christ may tent upon me. Simply put, that God's grace turns our thorn into a throne for his power to rest upon. The rest of the verse is an explosion of praise. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. To take pleasure is defined as to think it good. Let's put to think it good in the verse. Therefore, I think it good to be in infirmities. That's weakness. I think it good to be in reproaches. That's insults and injuries. I think it good to be in needs. That's distresses inwardly and outwardly. I think it good to be in persecutions. That's the pursuing or pressing on of oppression and affliction. Is anybody relating to this? I think it good to be in 
distresses. You know what distresses means? Narrowness of space. Anguish. Like a wheelchair. Like blindness. Like cancer. Like prison. And one definition of salvation will make sense out of narrowness of space. God, why have you allowed me to be isolated, narrowed in space, in anguish? And he goes, because my salvation will give you room to breathe. That's the definition of salvation in the Hebrew, room to breathe. So when you're in that tight space and God says, just breathe in spiritually my grace, you will find more room than you need. And I know that from experience, being in the suffocating place of prison. When I took a second to breathe in God's grace that wanted to do a work in my heart, I had more room to breathe than I did when I was free. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That statement right there is antithetical. Is that a word? I know some of you English majors in here will remind me that it's not. But I make words up all the time. <laughs> to what the world propagates. Doesn't the world say, no, 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 don't talk about your weaknesses. Lead with your strengths. Don't put your weaknesses on your resume. Tell them about your abilities, your educational background, your strengths, your accomplishments. Everything that the world puts out is about your strength. Don't let anybody know you're weak. Weakness is wasteful. So if you're struggling, here's a program that can help you become stronger. Hey, here's a pill you can pop to help you become more enhanced. The social media world that we are living in today is all about posting your strengths. The young ones in here, your highlight reel, post what you're eating before you eat it to make everybody else jealous that you're at that one restaurant. Hey, make sure you post your lattes on your Facebook later. You know when you're out and about with friends, you're posting that you're having a great time. The drinks are up. The post, the selfie. What I want to see, I want to see the post of the morning after that night. I want to see the post of the person bent over at the toilet. I want to see that post. So we put out our strengths, and God says, no, put out your weakness. When you put out your weakness, I can use it. Getting unstuck isn't about strengthening your weakness. Getting unstuck is allowing God's strength to use your weakness. So as the world will sell you strength to drive you away from your weakness, God tells you that your weakness is the vehicle that drives his strength. God says, let me use your weakness, and I'll let you use my strength. See, with Jesus, weakness is never wasted. In fact, with Jesus, weakness is your greatest asset. And I want to end by saying this one statement. That if it has touched your life, please know that it had to pass through the scarred hands of Jesus Christ. And there's always a divine purpose for what God has allowed.